Hi, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Pink Cloud with me, Dr. Alice Kirby, your host. And um, today I'm really excited because we've got Justin LMFT, who has um, his own podcast, which I'm sure he will talk about, called The Polyvagal Podcast. Um, thanks so much for coming on to talk to me today, Justin. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me to come on. Um, so I know you are a big purveyor of the polyvagal theory and you use this a lot in your work and, you know, clearly with the name of your podcast, it's something that's quite important with you. Could you just talk a little bit about what the polyvagal theory is for people who may not know? Yeah. And I, just, I did want to say out at the outset, my full name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. Thanks. I'm sure people, you know, um, so the polyvagal theory is the, it's, not, it's not a modality, it's not a therapy modality, it's not a curriculum, it's really just the science underlying how we as humans, but really mammals in general, connect. It's the science of connection and also how we respond to danger or life threat. Uh, so we, people have heard about flight and fight and freeze and uh, all the other Fs, but political theory really breaks down what's happening when we go into those defensive uh, behaviors. And what was really illuminating for me about that was understanding that these are a sequence of events, not a menu of options. These are not things that we choose to do. Um, and, you know, people who survive um, various scenarios or, uh, yeah, people who survive various scenarios, we look at it and we say, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? but it's not an option. It's not like we're choosing to do things. Our body just does these things. So the first thing that we do when we're in danger is we attempt to run away. And if we can't run away, we then drop into our fight behaviors. And then if we can't fight, we drop down and we just basically shut down and collapse. And um, the, what's really important here is not just if there's actual danger, but also perceived danger. So if, even if we, like, you know, uh, having a, a student, being told to go into the principal's office. There's not any like actual danger that they're not going to get hit in there. I don't think, I really hope not. They're <laughs> not going to be hit or abused, but there's the status differential being in trouble, parents being told. So the perception of danger is going to, it might force them to drop down into like wanting to run away. But when you're at school, you can't exactly run away. A lot of kids I work with do run away, but typically kids are not going to actually like get up and run out of the room but they're also not going to fight the principal. So a lot of times what they might do is just shut down and be quiet and kind of just deal with, you know, like listen and, and be, you know, um, lecture or whatever. They just sit, sit there and deal with it. So they might just shut down and kind of tune out or, or go numb even. Uh, but that's, even though there's no actual danger, there's life's not actually in threat. We can still respond in these ways, just like at, at work. If your boss is, you know, yelling at you or not even yelling at you, but if you can tell your boss is a little upset, that's going to cause you to not be in your safe and social state anymore. And that's really kind of where we want to stay is ideally as much as possible or be able to return to a safe and social state uh, more easily. I think that's a really good point. Um, Cause as you know, I'm studying the somatic experiencing um, oh, yeah. techniques. And so what's become really clear to me is that trauma doesn't necessarily have to be this, um, this big, huge life event. It can be a perception of trauma, which can really be um, like a very small incident. So I think, yeah, I think, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, it can be a large incident, can be a series of incidents over time, certainly. Um, but I do think it's important to acknowledge that perceived trauma, our bodies can respond the same way, which I, I think, think is, oh, go ahead. Yeah, right. No, exactly. It's the perception of the situation. Um, and it's not, not our cognitive perception of it, but our body's perception of the situation. The example I've been sharing recently is that I kind of, I'm realizing more and more, I have an issue with heights. I don't like being up high. And I don't like looking over and seeing like there's no ground. I, I, that really freaks me out. There's this arch, there's like this arch bridge that goes to San Francisco from where I live. And it terrifies the heck out of my body. My, my brain knows I'm safe. I know my car is new enough. It's not going to like fall apart. I know that the bridge is stable. I know that. And I can do my deep breathing and I can, you know, do whatever I, like all my coping stuff. But for some reason, my body perceives I am in mortal danger <laughs> mm -hmm. when I go on that, when I enter the bridge and start going up, like it, it really, it's not a cognitive thing. It's not like I don't know enough. I know enough, but my body in that situation perceives that my life is in danger and my body reacts to that situation. Even Dr. Porters, he's the, fa the father of the polyvagal theory. 
he uh, shares an example where he goes into an MRI machine and he knows what's up. He knows the whole deal with the MRI machine. But when he gets in there and he prepares for it too, but when he got in there, he said he, ha- he had to like be like, I-, I need out, get me out of this thing. Mm-hmm. So he knows his body still perceived that to be uh, a dangerous situation. So when we, I had an experience like that too, um, hiking Angels Landing. I don't know if you're familiar in Zion National Park. Um, and so you, it's in Utah and you get up really, really high and you're essentially on this very thin strip of land with like thousand foot drops on either side. And there's chains that you're supposed to hold on to. But until that point, you're, you're hiking up, you're climbing a mountain. You know, I was all yeah. gung-ho and, and thought like, oh, I love bouldering. This will be really fun. And I got up there on those chains, like 10, 15 feet and just stopped and like clung yeah. to this little tree. It was like, just, it had a full blown like panic attack because yeah. my yeah. body was like, nope, you're not going any higher, you know? Right. And I did the breathing and everything. And I was like, this just isn't going to work. Um, I would do the same thing. Yeah. My, we're not choosing to. No, no. It was my physiology was very strongly like this. It just isn't going to happen for you. Yeah. This is it's a nervous system issue because you wanted to get to the top. Mm-hmm. You probably wanted all the pride that you would feel in yourself and the accomplishment and all these wonderful things. So it's not an issue of wants. It's not an issue of understanding. It's an issue of my body is perceiving, in my opinion, accurately, <laughs> that yes. this is like a moral danger situation. And I, I've heard someone talk about that before, the way you described it. Mm-hmm. Podcast or listened to it. He talked about his experience going up that. And apparently it sounds like it becomes like a single lane where it gets really, can get, so that it, even yes. like terrifies me. But, um, what you're describing, we, so I had laid out, you know, flight and fight, which are the sympathetic, like your motor gets going, you have to get out of the situation or fight it off. And then the last option is shutdown where you basically collapse, dissociate, go numb and go somewhere else. Right. But then there's, those are the three basic defensive states, but there's also mixed states. So what that means is that we can combine these states uh, being in your safe and social state, plus being active, we call that play. That's just, you hmm. make eye contact, you play with someone, I can play with my kids. We feel safe, but we're also mobilized at the same time. We call that play. Uh, being safe, but still, we call that, what we call it stillness. So being safe and like laying down to go to bed and being able to fall asleep, that's stillness. You're, you're, you're safe, but you're also immobilizing yourself. But then now there's another one, which is a defensive thing, which is shutdown plus uh, sympathetic arousal which is your body wants to shut down, but it's highly charged. Mm-hmm. That, that's panic. Where mm-hmm. it's like when you were clinging to the ropes or the chains or whatever, you're, you were hi- probably highly charged. And I, that's how I feel going up that bridge. Like I, I am not, not calm whatsoever, but at the same time, my body wants to shut down. So it's yes. this weird, not weird. I don't want to call it weird, but it's this, it's this experience of being like your muscles are super tense, but you're not moving. And that's, that's freeze. That's really the difference between shutdown and freeze. Shutdown is more of a collapse. Freeze is this like rigid tensing where your body wants to shut down, but it's also highly charged at the same time. Because with the somatic experiencing work, when we talked about freeze, um, we've talked about it really as a sympathetic state, even though it doesn't look like yeah. one, even though it looks like this really deep parasympathetic state. When people start to come out of freeze, they, they'll tend to like spike way up like to that like higher levels of the window of tolerance, like way up to a sympathetic state. Um, when they come out of freeze? Yes, as they start coming out of freeze, um, okay. a lot of times they'll have like a higher sympathetic response. The, the, so from what I understand, what I read with, uh, from uh, Peter Levine, mm-hmm. is that the, with freeze, there's the high sympathetic response plus fear. Mm-hmm. And if you can uncouple, if you can decouple the fear from the sympathetic response, that will allow the sympathetic energy to, to become unstuck, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's the ideal, like with treating it, yeah. Okay. Is yeah. to be able to to guide it. But I, I guess maybe what I'm talking about more is just something that they told us to be aware of, like in oh, okay. the training for SE is in these deeper states, like as people start to come out of them, like that can be the oh, yeah. state is to go like, whoa, whoa, I'm feeling again. Like, and then it's this heightened sympathetic response. Um, oh yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's it's when you be when you come out of a shutdown state and you're feeling again that by itself can be a scary experience. You're not used to it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the, the first stop, it's a ladder. We, we have to go through the sequence. Uh, Deb Dana calls it the polyvagal ladder. We have, so if you're going from shutdown into your sympathetic arousal, which is the next step you have to, the first thing you might feel is aggression or anger. Um, it's there by nature. Biologically, we feel those things, not necessarily anger, but more like power. 
to be able to defend and push back a predator and then run away or, or even to kill a prey uh, so that we can live, right? Um, so the people I work with who go from this severe shutdown place into sympathetic arousal, it's extremely new and doesn't feel like power. It feels like anger. Mm-hmm. That's the experience of it. And they don't know what to do with that. Um, so it's, it's an issue of pointing it in the right direction, which is something I work on them with uh, versus just getting sucked into and lost in this um, anger and aggression. So when you talk about the polyvagal ladder, um, can you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah. Just like what are the rungs as we go up? And then I think I'm also kind of curious as to like, how do you work with people to start to, and this is a broad question because I understand everyone's yeah. different. Um, right. But like, how do you work with them to kind of temper or to help them regulate with when some of those emotions and anger start coming up? Let's, let's break this down into to a couple of pieces. So the first one was, uh, about the, the ladder and what that looks like. Is that what Yes, part one of the question. Um, well, the, the ladder is the sequence of events. And the way the ladder is, the polyvagal ladder is arranged is at the top, we have our safe and social state, which means that we can use um, eye contact, gentle eye contact, not like a forceful eye contact, which is more aggressive thing. But eye contact, um, eye crinkles that like, if I'm listening to you, I will, you know, a lot of times I'll squint my eyes, like to make, you know, I'm listening, I'm taking things in, I'm trying to understand. Uh, vocal prosody, which means that our voice can go up and down, like sort of like a sing-songy kind of quality versus like a more monotone voice that might come along with being in a defensive state, like that, you know, like a Ben Stein kind of thing. Um, so being in a safe and social state brings these behaviors with it. And when we drop down into, down the ladder, into uh, the first stop is flight mode. When we drop down, we lose those pro those behaviors, those pro-social behaviors. The eye crinkles go away. I think our eyes become more wide, like there's danger somewhere. And we're, we're constantly kind of looking for it. Uh, we lose access to a lot of our cognitive skills. Um, we lose access to you know, problem solving effectively or collaborating. We, we, these things become compromised. And I'm talking in very like black and white kind of a cartoony version of it. It's, mm-hmm blended than this but this is the basic idea um so we drop down into flight which is sympathetic arousal the other type of flight if you can't run away i'm sorry the other type of sympathetic arousal if you can't run away you drop down to fight mode and that's where you're going to use your you know upper body to push or fight off or hit um because you have to because you can't run away running away is not an option so now you have to fight back and if that doesn't work then the body perceives if I can't run away and I can't fight, then the whole, my life is now in danger. This is no longer just a dangerous situation. This is now a mortal, like I'm going to die and it prepares for death, which means it goes numb and it collapses. But doing, doing so actually like in the wild, basically, or for other mammals, doing so allows us the opportunity to escape. It gives us a couple of other options. So if we go numb, that, you know, people who survived uh, traumatic incidents that went numb or dissociated, it, you, you went there for a reason. That the, you go numb so you don't have to feel what it is. You don't have to feel the pain. And that if there's an avenue for escape, you can get up and escape. That's, that's the ideal, I think. Or you dissociate so that you don't have to remember what happened in the immediate sense. Because if you remember what happened, it's, it's going to be a lot harder to get up and escape. So that, that's why those are there, the, the dissociation and the numbness. It's, it's built into us biologically for those purposes to help us survive because there might be a moment where the predator is distracted by another predator or the predator is dragging you back to the cave to, to feed to um, cubs or whatever. And during those moments, there might be a chance to escape. So if we can't remember what happened and if we can't, if we don't feel the pain, we might be able to push the predator away and then run away uh, to safety. Does that kind of address what you're asking? Yes. So with the polyvagal ladder, it's essentially just the sequence of events that lead us to have a response. Is that correct? It's the, it's the, the uh, it's called neuroception. It's what we neurocept. It's what we detect outside of us, but also inside of us. Cause we can respond these ways to our own mm-hmm. thoughts um, or memories or flashbacks or whatever. So it's not just the outside world, but also the internal world as well. So it's, it's cues from the outside world, the internal world, and then how our body responds by dropping down the polyvagal ladder. Um, and if, it's also possible to get stuck in these places. Um, just because you survive something doesn't mean that your nervous system is back to a safe and social place. People can get stuck here for a very, very, very long time. 
Yeah, I think that's a big thing a lot of people deal with is that feeling oh, of yeah. stuckness in some realm or another. And I think because it's not necessarily cognitive, like people can do all these things to um, you know, help them move forward and different plans and work with different coaches. But if the physiology isn't addressed, then it's, right. it's hard to really get past a certain point. It really is. But a lot of, of therapy is cognitive based. Mm-hmm. And we just, you know, I, I hear coworkers throughout the years say, well, they just need new coping skills. Like, eh, it's more than that. It's not just a coping. It's not like a software download. This is not the issue. There's, there's more going on here. Um, and they're stuck in a certain place. They're, for some reason, they're not unable to, they haven't experienced healthy co-regulation with a safe other. So receiving it from us as a therapist or receiving it from a teacher is not a safe experience for them. They have not built that ability to do so yet. Not, and it's not their fault whatsoever. It's more of a co-regulation history kind of thing. Um, but you, you'd asked about how, to, how does someone work their way back up? Is that what it was? Yes, yes. What are some, I guess, sort of general techniques or strategies that um, you found to be helpful? And again, I know this is a very broad question right. because everyone's so different. But that's exactly it, is that everyone is so different. So when, and you're not doing this, but if someone were to ask me like, hey, how do I get unstuck? Mm-hmm. The sad answer is I, I don't know you, so I don't know the perfect answer for you. For me, drawing is a fantastic way for me to work my way mm-hmm. uh, up in, into a back in a safe and social place. And I feel my breathing become more regulated. Um, so drawing is fantastic. Listening to music for me is fantastic. So it, it's so individualized. But I, I do think you can do things like uh, Dr. Porter's always says, extending your exhale. So at, do more controlled breathing. If, if you can extend your exhale, that tells your 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 nervous system it tells your brain that you're safe because when we're when we're not safe when we're panicking or when we're anxious we uh our our breathing becomes more shallow and it's in our chest but if you're in a safe place you can breathe slower you can extend your exhale and you breathe into your belly which is really kind of ideal i think so consciously choosing to breathe that way and to practice breathing that way and not when you're actually in danger but i mean like when you have a moment where there's some silence or you, you can actually do that and practice it. Mm-hmm. Um, so extending your exhale meditation can be really helpful, but I know meditation is absolutely terrifying for a lot of people. Um, so I, I don't think it's the, I don't think it's a necessity, but I think it can be helpful. But I, I would recommend is whatever you're doing throughout the day, just notice how you feel, bring some mindfulness to it. I agree. Like literally, I don't care what it is throughout the day, bring some mindfulness to it. And that means really noticing not judging, not evaluating, but really noticing in the moment, like how does it feel to cut this carrot as I prepare dinner? How does it feel? My example is I like to ride my daughter's scooter outside, uh, which I don't break. It fits me. It's, it's just fine. Um, but when I do that and I, to really notice, like how does it feel for my foot to hit the pavement and push off? How does it feel for my other leg to kind of anchor me there and to, to be more rigid? How does it feel for my hands to grip tightly to the rubber um, handles? How does it feel to like glide through these turns and to really experience it, not just do it, but to experience it. And when I do those throughout the day randomly, when I do that, I notice that my breathing, there's a shift. Um, And so I would encourage anyone like, just notice what you're doing. Don't evaluate, don't judge as best you can. But just how does it feel to do these things? Like how does it feel, you know, to hold your phone and to flip your finger or your thumb? over and over and over again. Like, what's that experience like? How's the rest of your body doing in that moment? Like, how, is your body comfortable? How does it feel to sit in the couch? Um, how, do you feel supported? Like all these kind of just noticing sort of things. Mm-hmm. And I think bringing that level of non-judgmental curiosity, I think curiosity is a big piece of that. Not, ju- not judgmental, not evaluative, not trying to fix yourself, but just being really curious about what, what these moments are for, like how they are throughout the day. Um, just these little, little things and just bring some curiosity to it and, and to kind of relearn about your body's experiences um, if, if you need to. Yeah, I really love that. I talk about using curiosity a lot too with the yeah. people that I work with. Um, and I've been doing a lot with just visual orienting as a means yeah. of becoming more present and, and not just really, um, not just looking so much. And I was doing this this morning, but I'm finding with, with practice, I am getting much more um, it helps me to really get in my body. So like I'm walking, you know, I live by the ocean. So I just took a minute and it's crazy how much, maybe not crazy is not the right word, but it's interesting to me how much I can be out in the world and seeing things, but not really like taking things in. And so that practice of just 
really looking around and, and letting my eyes kind of wander to what they're drawn to and then actually observing and taking those things in. I find um, for me, that does a little bit of what you're talking about as far as like I notice my breath changes. I become, um, I start being able to feel more what's happening in my body and actually being present in my body. So I've been enjoying that too, like orienting first visually and then I'll sort of drop into more of like an auditory orienting as well and, and really like notice what am I actually hearing and, instead of just, I think we, life moves so fast for a lot of us, it's really easy to just continue to like go through things and not notice what's happening. So yeah, I like, I like what you said about how does it feel to cut this carrot or touch your phone, like all these just little basic things. But when we bring, yeah, when we have that sort of curiosity around it, um, it can really change just how we go through our days, I think, and increase that, that presence. Yeah. And what, and you probably know, um, a lot of what Peter Levine says is that it, it's like bringing the bodily sensations and thoughts and all the, all, all of our internal stuff, combining that with mindfulness, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just moving around and doing stuff. It's like experiencing it. Um, so if you're in this more like aggressive state and you feel the need to hit, like as therapists, we say like, go punch a pillow or I don't know, whatever. We do that kind of stuff a lot. Like, you know, you scream into a pillow or punch a punchy bag. Like it's, but it's not doing anything. It's not necessarily doing anything. It's about being mindful of the experience. Like, how does it feel to do that? Like focus on your chest. Like, how does it feel to go through that motion and to really notice it and not just to do it, but throughout the day, we just do things. We just sort of go through the day and we just do, but we don't really notice. And I don't think we bring a lot of curiosity to our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, I agree. I think it's um, really valuable to work with a therapist or with anybody who can help to make that um, make that curiosity and that awareness more a part of your your day to day life. I would hope so. <laughs> so, how long have you? I, I guess this is another two part question. What my real question is is how, and you you've shared a little bit about this, but I know you use this work a lot with your um, you work primarily with young people, correct? With students, yeah, high schoolers, vast majority of high schools, a couple of younger ones, but high schoolers, yeah. Okay, that's great. I mean, we certainly need this kind of therapy with young people. Yeah. Um, how do how do you feel like this work has sort of shown up in your life outside of your work in and I know you talked a little bit about the mindfulness in, in your scooter. And so I guess the second part of that is how has, how have you like brought this work into your family world and into, you know, with your wife and with your children? Um, how does that show up? I think that me being more aware throughout the day has helped me to get to and stay in a safe and social place, which is not possible. Like all the time, it's not going to happen. But um, now with like with the family, there's so many just stresses throughout the day, you know, that I'm able to like regulate through the day and make the most of my time. Like I know after work, I'm not in a position to like list to hear my kid's day. Unfortunately, I do the best I can, but after work where I've done a lot of listening, um, I'm kind of burnt out a little bit. You know what I mean? So I have to like respect that. And, and if I need silence, I'll let my kids know uh, I need a little bit of silence. You know, I'll, we'll come back and I'll check in with you. But also things like driving the car. There's lots of like deep noises. It's very stressful. The place where I live in is a very stressful place. Crazy, crazy drivers here. So it's not, I, I know that I'm not going to be in my safe and social place when I'm picking up my kids and they want to talk about their day. So I, I know that being in the car is not the best place for me to do that. So I, I maximize my time and we might do that during dinner or once we get home or whatever. Um, I, I feel like I've become, I think I've become a, a better listener. Um, overall, just in, not just in therapy, but over, at home as well. Um, and being like choosing when to and knowing when I'm at my best, hmm. uh, but also recognizing, you know, what my wife is telling me or like what my kids are doing or whatever, that I have a reaction to that. Um, and, and I've always thought like, I think I'm a good parent. I, I don't hit my kids whatsoever, but and I never will. But um I think I'm better able to recognize when I drop down the polyvagal ladder, when I, when I go more into like this anxious controlling kind of place and to pull back on that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, just the, just the awareness. Um, I think I make better use of my play time with my kids. Um, That's a big one. Yeah. And I, I know that there's times where I don't want to play and I'll tell them like, you know, I just, I'm not, like it's not going to happen right now. I need something else right now or whatever it is. But when I'm playing with them, 
I, I bring more curiosity to my experience of the play. And that seems to be a better connection with them overall. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Versus like entertaining them or, but I'm, I think I'm more engaged. Um, yeah. That's great. I mean, that sounds really nice for your family too. Do you, do you, um, and you kind of touched on this. Do you feel like you self-regulate a little bit more easily or naturally, like just through practice and awareness of this work? Like, do you, will you find yourself in, like whenever you're in those uncomfortable situations, like that you're naturally just sort of self-regulating and, and checking in with yourself? Um, let me know if that question makes sense. It does. Um, I, yeah, I, I think so overall. Um, no, I, no I, I'm pretty confident in that. So I'm like, I'm like judging, well, am I actually doing a more effective job? Yeah, I think, cause I don't think I ever stopped to like seriously evaluate. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think, I think I bring a lot more self-regulation. I, I know I at least bring more awareness. Um, but yeah, I think overall that I'm able to, to like pull back, like if I feel the urge to, to yell or be more demanding, I, I, I can pull back on that and realize that this is going to send them down their own sort of dysregulation and uh and that i need to be a healthy co-regulator and and be more connected versus commanding you know what i mean yes I do. Makes sense. um so I, I do think it's helped me to self-regulate better and I, I do think it like i'm able to recognize where i'm at and when it comes to like expressing love I feel like I've been doing a better job of that. Like, I feel like that I'm realizing that I work better through touch and that giving my kids big hugs um, and whatnot, like that is best for me. I can mm-hmm. say that out loud too, but like play and touch are really big ones for me. Um, I, I, you know, drawing with them, doing art projects has actually taken a turn and become a lot more interesting. Like we're not just drawing side by side anymore. Sometimes we'll do this sort of like, we have this uh, whiteboard thing and either myself or my son or my daughter will uh, we'll all get there together and do this like scribble. It's this weird, I don't know how to describe it, honestly. It's this process where we take our markers and we're all going at the same time, but no one's talking about what we're doing. No one's planning it out. We're just doing. Mm-hmm. And then it's interesting because at first we're like bumping into each other and like, it's, you know, it's, it's not flowing, but over time, like we're able to, sorry, over time we're able to, work better without talking about it and we just sort of hit this like flow of the three of us or even just one of one of one of them and one of me or me (laughs) (laughs) um but it's this weird and i don't know how to describe it better but it's it's kind of like we've we're in sync okay it's non-verbal whatsoever but it's like we're picking up on each other's speeds and we're adjusting and we reach this really cool like balance without even having to talk about it and um it's, it's really like, the, it does, I know for me at least, I'm, I'm assuming for them, that it does shift my breathing. It shifts my, I feel my state shift from uh, from doing these just very in the moment sort of things with them. Yeah, that's lovely. I think I enjoy being outside more with them. I, I think it's kind of like heightened um, all the things that I, that I was doing with them anyways, but I think I'm just more grounded and more mindful of these experiences. That's great. I think honestly, I, th- I think I've become a better listener for for my spouse as well. Um, and really kind of understanding where she's at versus where I'm at in that moment. And I think it's really improved. Um, honestly, probably every facet of my family life now that I'm thinking about it. Did that happen just over time? Um, with you um, practicing this and becoming more aware and doing more studying with the polyvagal theory with these bottom up sort of therapy techniques? Cause I know you are familiar with a lot of Dr. Levine's work. And Yeah. I think that, I think there's things that I've, been doing as a therapist and I've learned through my work, like listening skills and parenting practices that I've done throughout the years anyways. But now I'm able to frame things as on the ladder, you know, um, and as a sequence of events and knowing that where I'm at on the ladder really, really helps me just throughout the day, no matter what it is, even in, in session with my clients, that I can recognize where I'm at and also where they're at. And doesn't seem as out of control anymore. It doesn't seem, hmm. it seems very manageable. Um, is that, I'm sorry, did that address your question? I think so. Okay. I think so. I got, um, that's really delightful though. I mean, maybe delightful is not the right word. It's kind of a lighthearted word, but 
when I mean, I think when it's when you're working with people and and there are those big traumas and and these sort of big scary things come up for them, for that to be more manageable for you, I would imagine the whole that the whole space you're creating is more manageable. I think so that's so. got to be hugely so. helpful for the people you're working with as well. Yeah, and I know one big change was before learning about all this stuff. When someone would get angry in session, to me that was like something's happening that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Or something I'm doing or a place they're going that's wrong. And now I can recognize anger as they're coming out of their shutdown state. And now I'm like excited. And now I can contain this with them. And it's a lot more manageable versus me freaking out and be like, oh my God, something's happening. Um, now it's like, okay, now we're on the next step. Cool, let's go. Like I'm excited about it. And I think that change, they pick up on that. And it, Definitely. Yeah, it creates a safe space versus someone who's kind of worried that, you know, they're, they're worse off in some way. Right. Yeah. That's a big deal. Um, do you find that like working in the school environment and in discussion, you know, with other licensed marriage family therapists or other counselors, like, do you see that these bottom up type therapies are becoming more prevalent or more people aware of them? Um, I don't think it's a school system issue. I think it's um, in general therapy issue. This yeah. is not stuff that we were taught, that I was taught in school. And based on what others have told me, this is not something they, they were taught in school. Um, I, it, there's a lot of focus placed on CBT, DBT. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of focus placed on modalities that are supposed to be time limited. Um, so the, the body stuff, there's a lot of focus on, you know, the neurobot, well, it should be on the neurobiology stuff, but, you know, like chasing down the chemical imbalance theories and all that stuff. But the, but looking at the body, brain-body connection, looking at trauma, looking at somatic experiences of things, I don't think this has been, I don't think it's been researched really, I don't know how, if at all. So therefore, it doesn't trickle down to the academic setting. Um, this is something that we have to search out on our own. And that's, that's exactly what I did was I, I just wasn't satisfied with the, uh, the education I'd gotten around trauma specifically. And I felt there was a lot of room for me to grow as a therapist. And so... That's why I was like, there's, there's something I'm missing here. Mm-hmm. First, the first uh, experience that I had that was like significantly different was watching Dr. Levine's uh, YouTube videos. And I was, I was really just like, whoa, like this is not something I was taught or heard about whatsoever. I heard about brain body connection, but no one's explained it. And from there, it connected to Dr. Portis and polyvagal theory. And that really, really obviously clicked. Like that was a huge turning point for so both of those people. Deb mm-hmm. Dana, another one where it was, this is not something we got in school and we really, really need to. So, it, but that's just, I don't think that's the standard practice right now. I don't think people are hearing about this in school. Um, and I don't think, I, I know when you, when we work in settings like county mental health, school district, that they want, they want to see that we're using quote unquote evidence-based practices, which I get. Sure. Sure. I get that. But, um, Really, in my opinion, this stuff is uh, it just having a basic, a fundamental understanding of polyvagal theory. I think teachers should have this. I think therapists should have this. I think this should be common knowledge. Um, and then knowing this stuff will better inform those evidence-based practices that the schools want. Because what helps with any therapy is not the techniques exactly. It's the therapeutic relationship. And if we can boost the therapeutic relationship, all of the all of these practices are, are going to see a boost as well. Like it's, if you don't have a solid therapeutic relationship, you, you simply don't have the outcomes you want. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And, and I know like in my last module with the, with the SE training, somatic experiencing, somebody asked that question, like, is this, is this an evidence-based practice? Is this a research-based modality? Because I come from a very um, research-based profession as well. So for me to use techniques, I really was seeking out something that where there is at least some body of research. And so I know with the somatic experiencing, they've done a few pretty large, um, pretty large studies. I know they've done at least one, I think in India in a big hospital that had really good oh, okay. outcomes and they've got a few smaller studies and then a few case studies just for your own, you know, edification. So, mm-hmm. because it is nice when you're talking about this work, I think to other people professionally to be able to give it like that little bit of a backing, especially when you're coming from evidence-based fields. Um, and I think the other thing I've noticed and that I really 
try like in the work that I do to, to sort of categorize this a little bit differently because there are so many like mind, body, spirit, connection right. type things going on, which I'm yeah. not saying that any of that's bad, but I, I do think there's a difference between, I don't know, like trauma work and, and trauma recovery type work. This type of work is a little bit different than like, let's do, I can see that. I mean, you know, like all those buzzwords, that's what we were taught. Yes. Brain, body connection, mind, body, spiritual, like, yeah, cool. But no one, no, no one up, up until I found Dr. Levine had uh, broken that down into a very easy way to understand. And I must, I know there's a lot more for me to learn from him and that hopefully I'll do a SC at some point, but um, nobody was breaking it down like that. And, and then the, and then Dr. Porter's having the actual underlying, uh, you know, nervous system stuff. Like that is not information we get. I don't think anywhere else, you know? And it's so valuable. It, it's like it's saw, it brings in this whole other piece to the puzzle that once you start using and understanding the work, like it makes so much sense. I think both cognitively and intuitively, really. So it's, I mean, thank God these people have this work out here and, and we're Absolutely. able to u- utilize it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, have you, I've got maybe one more question for you. Okay. I'm just curious about if you've been exposed at all with some of the work they're doing with PTSD using psychedelics. Um, and exposed, I guess. I mean, have you heard about this or? Um... I've heard about it, and there was some major Instagram account that I stumbled upon, but um, I don't know enough about it. Like stuff like mm-hmm. this is like there's there's so many facets to working with trauma, and there's so many different therapeutic modalities, and even with just within polyvagal theory itself, it's just the underlying work that can affect numerous disciplines. So. You know, people have asked me actually a few times recently about like gut health and stuff. Oh yeah, that's a big. That's a that's a big one right now. But you know, what, do I spend my time looking into these different things, or do I really hyper focus on the basics of um, polyvagal theory? And that's kind of what I've done. And because early on, I was like, well, I need to learn about cellular stuff. I need to learn about more body stuff. And and I realized, you know, people go to school for this uh, for quite a long time. I'm not yes, going to learn. Like, it's just not going to happen. So let me focus on therapy and parenting and um, the school uh, system and stuff like that and really just kind of focus on my niche so there's there's so many different ways that you could take this and um, I, I just I don't know if anyone can quite get them all down you know but I've heard a lot of stuff about the gut stuff I don't know about it the psychedelic thing I don't know I don't know about that um, really at all just I, I don't know I don't think I know, even know enough to really comment on it you know yeah yeah I don't know a lot either I knew um I know I've heard about it on a couple different podcasts, just various that they're having pretty good success. And then I recently learned from my therapist, actually, she said, it's actually up by you, I think close to Stockton, they're doing, um, or Silicon Valley, somewhere up near the Bay Area, they're doing training programs for therapists to help people after they use these, um, like MDMA or some kind of a, like a guided psychedelic experience with the purpose to relieve trauma. They're now offering some sort of a certification for therapists really? to come in and work with people after they have this opening through this experience to continue to like oh. guide them, you know, further. So it's not just, Oh, I go to this retreat, have this experience. And now what, you know, now I'm right back to my same environment. They're offering training. So I didn't know because yeah. that's in your area, if that was anything you'd heard about. I think no, it's I, that's, new. that's really interesting though. I think the way that I work, I want to be able to work with anybody right off the bat. Mm-hmm. That means that the language I use has to be extremely plain to the point. And that doesn't mean that I'm like hitting people over the head with, here's the truth of your life. Like snap out of it. <laughs> That's it's good. Like, but it's like, um, I don't use the word neuroception and therapy. You know what I mean? Mm-mm. So I just, I, br- I boil these things down to the bare bones. So the people I work with now and in the future um, I don't know if they're going to have access to MDMA and, and all that. So right, right. Maybe not for your that. population. Yeah. Well, not definitely not. Well, I hope not. Well, actually, they, they do have access to it, which is. Yeah, it's probably not in the way that would be therapeutic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, no, no matter who I'm wor- working with, I want to be able to connect with them and use very plain language and use what we have available in the moment. Um, and that's my focus is like, what's the basics that I can do, the basic therapy skills, basic listening skills. And how do I master those? That's, that's my goal is to master the, the fundamentals. That, that's what helps. And now on top of that, now I'm bringing in the, the body stuff more, the somatic stuff mm-hmm. uh, and the polyvagal understandings of things. And now I feel like this has just increased my ability to work with people. And it's, it's through simple things 
like um, using fidgets in session. That doesn't mean I give it to them and they just sort of fidget with it, but, but they do. But it's more like being mindful. There's this one fidget that I, I like to use and, and to share with my clients, which is this like oval rubbery thing that has these like rubbery spiky things all around it kind of, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, very flexible. And it's interesting the way that I like to use it versus my clients. And it's, it's interesting the way that the different clients use it. Um, but I'll, I'll give it to them and I'll say like, you're in this place where you're kind of aggressive, like you're angry right now. And um, this, this like, here, hold this while you talk, because we'll talk things out and I'll, I'll notice how they play with it and stuff. And then I'll, I'll direct them to be more mindful of it. And I said, try and do it like this. And I'll, I'll guide them like, you know, pull it, you know, the way that it works for me. And they'll be like, nah, it doesn't work for me or it does work for me. And then I'll say, well, how, how does your body want to do it? And it's about being mindful of it and really noticing and then holding that experience and kind of letting that energy come through them. And it's really neat to see them go through that and then come out the other end and, be, and take a deep breath and be like, whoa, that was, that was different. It was this moment of really respecting how I feel and respecting the aggression I have inside of me without judgment. Mm. Without freaked out about, about it, but really noticing it and holding it in a more loving way. Um, so just like simple things with fidgets, I, I have found to, to be really, really helpful. Um, and I, I have a basket full of these different things that people can play with while they talk. And it's, it's I, I love seeing which ones they choose and how they use it. And then it, as we guide them to be more mindful of how they're using it, to see how it changes after that. And, and that there's really a shift happening in the breathing. And, and it's so cool to watch, uh, to, to watch that process happen. I love seeing when someone can come from shutdown and hopefully back up to a safe social place, at least in session. I love seeing how they're able to make eye contact. Yeah. And, and to like the, the color comes back in their face mm-hmm. and early, early on when I started doing this stuff, I noticed there was these differences, but I couldn't name them cause I didn't have the practice of doing so. I'm like, something's different. Oh, sorry. My earbuds came out. <laughs> <laughs> so I, like I noticed like something's different, but I, I was like, I couldn't tell what it was. It has something to do with their face. And I'm realizing now that it's eye contact, their colors in their face, they're crinkling mm-hmm. their eyes that it's more of an animated face because when they would walk in, it was this sort of porcelain uh, face, you know, like there was not a whole lot of, it was flat affect. Um, blood wasn't really in there. It was pretty pale. And then by the end of the session, they were, it was this beautiful moment of like making eye contact with me and noticing it and then holding it. Yeah. And it was like, it was different. Like it was, they were experiencing it for maybe even the first time. And a couple of the teens I work with would say, yeah, I haven't, I've never felt like this before. I've never mm-hmm. felt safe with someone or trusting. I've never been able to like hold eye contact and be okay with it. Um, so that's, it's such a Mayan, it's such a gift and like a beautiful, like really just genuinely beautiful moment to be able to, to have that with someone. It is. It's a huge gift to give to them too. Even if they, have, you know, even if they need to, <clears throat> excuse me, come back to session to experience that, but to, to give someone the gift of like being able to be present in their body and, and like, be behind their eyes is, I mean, that's what it's all about. That's, that's awesome that you're experiencing that. It's really, really cool. I noticed just doing some simple things, some more body awareness that I noticed that people were not that they have to, but they were disclosing more at a faster pace. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed in my own nervous system, this is like early on, I've, I think I've built up more, but early on I would leave these sessions and there was something going on inside of me. Like I was more sympathetically charged and like, almost like gasping for breath, like, whoa, what was that? Like, what just happened? And, and I know now that I'm sort of mirroring them in a way. Um, well, I think there's a lot, a lot of pieces going on there, but there's stuff going on there. And there was one session where it was kind of like, I had almost like a Nancy session, like Dr. Levine has his, his Nancy story. Mm-hmm. But you know what I'm talking about? Was this like the first one where he told her to yeah. run from the tiger? Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And she went through this big shift and was like running, not, not running, but her legs were moving and um, she really had this, I guess, I don't want to call it cathartic, but it was this moment of like, well, it was her, her, her energy got, it was discharging. Right. Mm-hmm. And I had a moment like that. And for me after the session, it was really like, Whoa, what did I just experience? And I wasn't prepared for it. Honestly, what did I just experience? And like, what does this mean? And my body was like, my heartbeat was going. Um, but uh, it was, it was, Honestly, I don't even think I have the language to really describe it. I haven't really tried to name it in much depth, but it was like I was really kind of feeling, I think, along with this person, you know, mm-hmm. and it was, it was a moment of like, you know, this, I can't go back. I can't go back to just doing therapy the way that I was. And to see someone go through that um, was really amazing. 
it, it was like absolutely amazing to see those huge gasps of breath and like and to see their nervous system really kind of coming back into a, a healthier balance and then they look up at me and can hold eye contact like mm-hmm. it was absolutely astounding it's really given someone like life in a way yeah yeah i, 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 I see what you're saying yeah yeah um, it's well it's like it's like coming back into their body coming back into experiencing their life rather than just sort of going through it yes yeah which we all do we do and it's wonderful to have these tools and to have guides um such as yourself and therapists that can help us you know to have those first experiences if we need them and then to have the continued experience of of coming back to help guide us through practice that's yeah i i hope that more and more therapists take this just like a fundamental level of understanding where someone's at as far as like flight fight freeze or shutdown just being able to see in session where they're at it for me makes the session a lot more manageable now i have i have more of a clear path like i have that ladder in my mind i know where they're at on the ladder mm-hmm. i know when they're not moving up i know when they're going back down like i can track it it's um it's it's uh it, it just makes things a lot more clear and, and manageable for for me as a therapist and i think allows me to bring a greater sense of safety like now the the client and i can track the ladder we can see where they're at um and they have the words for it and it's very understandable and they can look back in the past and be like and know where they were on the ladder when certain things happened um, it's I think that makes it less scary for them as well to understand like, oh, okay, I'm experiencing this and and maybe I've had this similar experience before and I was able to come out of it. And now like I can recognize I'm here. This doesn't mean I'll I'll be here forever or that this is some very scary thing I can't get out of. It's just a place on this, on this ladder. Yeah. Being able to name, being able to name things, I think gives you a sense of control or or ownership um, in general. And it's not so overwhelming. Yes. If I can name where I'm at, at least like that, that relieves some, I think, judgment. Uh, because if you don't have this knowledge, when you look back at the past and you look at the situation you survived, there's a lot of judgment that comes with it. And why didn't I do this? And why didn't I do that? Uh, versus I, I know why I didn't, because I had this sequence of events my body went through because it, it was trying to keep me alive. Uh, it was trying to get me out of danger versus um, I'm weak and I should have done this or I should have done that. Uh, it's it's a much just just that that level of new understandings I think can change someone's story, which can change how they uh, the amount of shame and judgment and self blame and all, all those things. Just and having some relief from those it doesn't cure, it doesn't fix everything. But if we can take away the those pieces, the self uh, blame and the judgments and the shame enough, if we can like take those away from the body sensations enough, now the body can get closer to working through. <laughs> I keep hitting my earbuds, can get through, can get closer to working through, you know, where it's stuck. Yes. Right? It's a big deal. I, I think I mentioned I work with um, women in recovery from alcohol addiction. And yeah. most of the women that I work with are, are kind of at, at a pretty solid place in their recovery. But I mean, it's a big deal. There's a lot of those feelings of, you know, shame and why did I do this and why was my behavior yeah. like this? So, you know, being able to work through that and just look at it in a little bit of a different way definitely helps people to just to move forward with more ease. Um, having that understanding is, is a big deal. It really is. And when I break down the polyvagal ladder to my clients to see them take it in and I can see like in their brains that are working this new story out and I know they're like, oh, and they say, oh, like that makes mm. a lot of sense. And now, now the self judgments don't really don't fit the story anymore. Um, yeah, and, and you know the shame and all, all that stuff. It doesn't quite fit anymore. Mm-hmm. My, my body's amazing. It helped me to survive the situation versus I'm weak. Yeah, um, yeah, or I deserved it or, or whatever it was. Helps to change the story, I think, through understanding it and understanding the the physiology. Yeah, and as I understand it, and tell me if I'm wrong, but the part of part of uh, what Dr. Levine talks about is separating the fear from the bodily sensations. I think Uh, it's yes. I mean, that's my understanding as well. And and sometimes separating even like emotion words from the bodily sensations. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but when it comes to freeze in particular, the free state where you're mm-hmm. sympathetically charged, but your body wants to shut down. If you can take the fear away from them, maybe I'm wrong here, but I believe if you take the fear away from that, that now the energy can sort of uh, 
go through the, what it needs to go through. And, uh, and please, if I, if I got that wrong, let me know. But part of what keeps the fear in place are the self-judgments and the shame and the blame. So if we can dull those down at least a little bit just by having a new understanding of what happened, now those things, those, the self-judgment, blame, shame, all that stuff can, can be set aside a little bit more easily. And now we're left with, I think, what you went through and what you're left with, the, the energy that's still inside of you. And now how do we allow that energy to go through? Because we've already removed all the, all the fear-based like judgments and whatnot. Now we're left with the, the energy that's stuck inside of you. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I think that gives, it almost takes a weight off of that energy. So yeah. it's, it's got a little bit more of a freedom to, to start shifting and moving. And you can you know, watch right. that trajectory of what happens as it begins to move. Well, it's the fear. It's partially the fear that keeps it in place, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think the fear I'm kind of um, saying is that weight. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the way I'm understanding uh, his, just the, the books I've read from him. That's kind of how I'm understanding what he was saying there. Yes, that's my understanding as well. Um, well, Justin, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to talk to you. I love hearing you talk about the polyvagal theory. Um, it's just fascinating. I love this work so much. Um, and it's, it's helped so many people. So it's really, it's nice to hear for you the changes that, you know, you've noticed in your practice with getting more comfortable as well as in your day-to-day -day life. Yeah, it's, it's, um, just a basic level of understanding, I think, can really open things up for people. I agree. Um, like it's, I don't know, yeah, for me, it's, it's been so powerful that I had to, like, create a podcast about it and talk about it and do the best I can to bring a, a new level of understanding for people that have, um, that have like, survived something. And mm -hmm. that's, like, a, um, there, there's something about that that I feel like you survived something. I, I view that as, like, you're incredible. Yeah. And, like your body works. So, but I know that they don't view it that way and that that doesn't sit well with me. So like, I have to talk about this out loud and hopefully people will buy in and, and get something out of it. Not buying literally, it's not for sale. I'm just like giving it. Yeah, sure. Hopefully but, they don't believe what I'm saying. Yes, exactly. <laughs> buy into the theories. Um, yeah. I think you're doing a great service for people. Thank you. So, um, yeah, you're welcome. And so let people know where they can find you. I know you have the Polyvagal podcast. Yeah. Um, anywhere available. you want to download the podcast. Yeah, pretty much available any, anywhere. Um, Apple's the biggest one. Um, but, you know, on Google Podcasts and Stitcher and all kinds of places. Uh, but beyond that, if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's Justin LMFT. That's my main place for content that I'm putting out there besides the podcast. And then there's also JustinLMFT.com where I have a blog and um, a bunch of other stuff. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm very open to people contacting me. If you have questions, like I'm, I have zero unread messages in my email or my DMs, like I'm really on top of that stuff. Um, I can't respond to specific scenarios. I just, I'm not, I'm not allowed to by law, my license. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but if it's like a general question, I'm more than happy to address that or point you in the right direction. That's great. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye.